You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Who doesn't? But I gotta admit, after a while, all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips. Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as The Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal, is available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you. Hi, I'm Annie from the United States. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you are listening to your favorite international podcast. That's right, and you just heard the promo for Excuse Me, That's Illegal, which sounds great. I'm going to check it out. You should, because uh, you already have 33 episodes to, to listen to. So Excellent. going to be entertained for a while. Guys, we're back. Sorry for not giving you a heads up, you know, in advance. Not telling you that we're going to take a little break, but it was kind of a last minute decision. We figured after two years, we deserve a little time off. I did a lot of gardening. I even managed to read a bit. Not true crime related. Any you told us last week already, Florida was nice. It was. It was amazing. It was also tiring. <laughs> I'm not really cut out for those long drives anymore without stopping, but it was amazing to spend time with family. Mm. Also, I just want to give everybody a heads up that the house across the street is having construction done, and so it's occasionally very noisy. And I know every time I say that, my sister's like, I can never hear anything, thanks to my $20 phone box that seems to <laughs> insulate my microphone. But I always want you to know, just in case you hear like beeping yeah. or a loud crashing sound or something. The one time I don't say it is the time you'll hear it, is, what ha is how that works, I think, right? Yeah, that's true. But we're back. It's exciting. I'm so excited to be talking to you again. Yeah. Yeah. I missed you. Me too. I missed you. So thanks for being so understanding and supporting for not deleting us from your podcast app, for sharing our content and for your ratings and reviews. We appreciate it so much. We honestly can never tell you how much we appreciate it. And we, of course, want to give a special shout out to our newest Patreon members. And they are Justin Scott. Thank you, Justin. Nicole Hanley-Foy. Thanks, Nicole. And Debbie Shadoff. Thanks, Debbie. We really appreciate all of your support so very much. Thank you. And apologies to our Patreon members because I've just uploaded a road trip video <laughs> from our trip. And it feels a little bit more like punishment. Like here, no, watch an hour on the so road. So good, really. <laughs> I loved it. I enjoyed it a lot. So if you want to drive around with Annie for an hour, yeah, check out Patreon. If you want to check out the American highway system, <laughs> please. <laughs> and the thing that makes me laugh is my sister. The Moose is now on Patreon only because she liked our makeup video so much. And the Moose, <laughs> like me, does not wear makeup. But she thinks it's the funniest thing she's ever seen. And she wants more of it, which 
it's so bizarre to me. Like, she's the last person I would have ever thought would have wanted to watch us do makeup. But she said she almost wet her pants when I when it was time to pull out the fluffy brush. And I was like, I've only got this one from 15 years ago. Or this giant one. Like, I don't... Yeah, it's fun. It's good times. And... Tonight, we have our Cards Against Humanity with our murder tier, yes. which is something I always, honestly, I look forward to. Even when I it's feel so like much fun. I'm busy and, oh, I wish I didn't have this thing, like it's an obligation. But then once I actually play, I'm so glad I did. It's like, it mm. forces me to take one night a month at least where I just laugh ridiculously with everybody. Yeah. And it's it's good. It's good for everybody's mental health, I think. So, yeah. I think so, All too. Right. That's enough about Patreon, but we love you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's get right into today's episode. And um, I have to warn you, it's very sad. It's quite troubling mm. because this is the story of a murdered child. It's a very brutal murder. And I also will be talking about sexual abuse, sexual assault. Mm. Okay. We are traveling to Berlin. The year is 1904. And I think I've talked about Berlin in the 1920s, late 1920s, early 1930s. I think it was the two-parter about the Galapagos affair. But how was life in Berlin 20 years prior to that? In 1871, the proclamation of the German Empire took place and Berlin was chosen to become the imperial capital. And the population went from 830,000 people in 1870 to roughly 2 million in 1900. So that's a growth of 140% wow. in 30 years. Yeah, 30 yeah. years. Every day new people arrived in Berlin because they were drawn in by the possibility to work in one of the big modern factories. Siemens, IG, Aqua, that's just a few, and they all were located in Berlin. And around 1900, Berlin is considered to be one of the most modern and fastest growing European cities. Did you know that the first electrical streetcar in the world was running through the streets of Berlin, as was the first elevated railway worldwide? I think that's interesting. I would have guessed it would have been in the States. Right. Yeah, I I did not know that, and now I do. So, I le that's interesting to me. I would have thought it was. I don't know what I would have thought. New York, maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. I would have guessed yeah. New York, Chicago, something like that. I think the first subway is Boston. I think. Watch, I'm wrong about really? that, but I I think so. So this rapid growth came, of course, at a price because like many fast-growing cities, Berlin just couldn't keep up with housing and infrastructure. Traffic was insane, like crossing the street turned into an almost impossible adventure. The living quarters are scarce. There are small, dark, humid rooms and they are often shared among several people and not from the same family, I may add. Mm. I'm sure they had the same system that was common in Vienna at the time. There was the newly introduced 10-hour workday that led to a shift system, you know, day shift, night shift, because the factories were running 24 hours, probably. And that meant that not only the rooms could be shared, but the beds were shared. You know, that meant one person would sleep during the night, normal, then get up in the morning, go to work, while the other renter could use the bed mm. that was working night shift. In German, that's called a Bettgeher. I'm sure you must have some similar things or must have had some similar things in the big cities at the time right yeah i think it was i think we talked about it a little bit in the victorian episode but i think around the early 1900s this was common in all in, the big yeah. cities yeah, yeah i think yep absolutely the thing is not only rooms and beds were shared also toilets and in average that meant 40 people had to share one toilet in the hallway which mm. is a lot of people that's a lot of people toilet. to share yeah. one toilet, yeah. 
And I read something that I also found really interesting. I didn't know that because when they were building new apartments, you know, while the construction was going on, while the, you know, the paint had to dry or stuff like that, they would already rent out the apartments for a lower price. And then once the apartment buildings were finished, they would kick out the renters Oh. And the people who would pay more rent would move in into the finished apartment. You could also rent compartments in basements for a very low price. And if you had a compartment in a basement, you were still one of the luckier ones because homeless rate in the city was incredibly high, as was the suicide rate. And I think you can all picture now Berlin in 1904, hectic, overcrowded, people running across the streets, you know, trying their best not to get hit by a car, small dark rooms full of people huge factories. I imagine it a bit like the Fritz Lang movie Metropolis, you know, just a little bit less or just a little bit more chaotic, I guess. I have not seen that. (laughs) I'm so not surprised. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but I do understand busy cities, or at least I understand the idea of them. I have always grown up in small towns and I lived in Boston for a little bit, but even then... I lived in Jamaica Plain, and I always lived in houses that have been turned into apartments, things like that. So in one of the working class neighborhoods, in one of the huge newly built tenement blocks, there lived a man named Friedrich Berlin. He was a cigar maker, and he lived there with his family. He had a wife. He had two grown-up sons. One, his name was Karl. He was age 21. And the other one, Bruno, was age 15. And he also had a young daughter, Lucy. She was eight. So... They live in Berlin and their last name is Berlin. That's great. Yeah, how great is that, right? I I love love it. (laughs) So I, of course, tried to figure out how many people in Berlin carried the last name Berlin in 1904. I could not find this information online, but I do know that in 2014, 2,342 people in Berlin had the last name Berlin. I also found out that the most people with this last name don't live in Germany. Uh, You want to take a guess where they live in which country? Are they here in the United States? Yes, they are. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So Friedrich Berlin lived with his family in one of the working class quarters. He worked as a cigar maker and he was a very well-liked man, very respected. His private life seemed to have been rather happy. That the family had everything they needed. I mean, they were a working class family, but they were it's it was okay. It was okay. Yeah. Uh, most importantly, they had each other. I think they had a very close relationship. And Lucy, the young girl, she was a friendly child. And they also called her pretty, which always, it's, mm. I don't know, it always feels weird to me when I called it, when I call a child pretty. Yeah. No, but in everything I read, she's like, she was such a very pretty girl. No blonde hair, blue eyes, red cheeks, uh, mm-hmm. curly hair. I don't know. <sighs> Maybe I shouldn't even mention it because it doesn't matter if she was pretty or not pretty, whatever that is. It gives me this sour taste in my mouth. Like it, it's kind of, What's going to happen to her? This happened to her because of a certain look, you know? Uh, I kind of want to say stop calling children pretty. No, I agree. I know exactly what you mean, and I agree. And it's it's the same thing we see with... I think it's gotten especially bad since... I think really since John Bonet's case. Mm, Yeah, John Bonet or Madeline McCann also. But Madeline was more... 
Yeah, Madeline, not as much, because I feel like in the Jean Bonnet case, because of her being in pageants, yeah. it's the first time we all sort of looked at this aspect of childhood, where it was yeah. like, oh, you're trying to make a child look like a pretty adult. And that's, for me, that's strange. I mean, no, I'm not getting into childhood pageants or any, you know, whatever, but it's just an uncomfortable feeling. It's like they're they're children. They're, yeah, I'm with you. It's It's a strange... It's a strange thing. I mean, there are there are so many other things that are more important. Like she was described as a little bit of a wild child, but <laughs> she never caused her parents any grief. She mm -hmm. was friendly to all the people she knew, but she shied away from strangers. And she also knew that she was never, ever, under no circumstances, allowed to go with strangers, which is very important. Yeah, definitely. It was 9th of June, 1904, which was a Thursday. And around 11 a.m., Lucy had returned from school, and she was then allowed to play in the inner courtyard for a while before her mom called her up to eat lunch with her family, because, as always, Friedrich had returned home at noon during his lunch break, and the three of them ate potatoes and cucumber salad. Friedrich then returned to work, and Lucy was keeping her mother company in the kitchen, and around 1 p.m., the girl asked her mother for the key to the hallway toilet. Oh, okay, so the toilets were kept locked? Yeah, so usually you wouldn't want strangers from the streets or even from other floors to use your bathroom, uh, the one that was assigned to your floor. And so the people living on one floor would all have a key, like, they, everybody would have a key. Okay, yeah, I think I assumed there would be a key to get into the building, and then another one to get into your individual apartment, but then I, I just think I wasn't expecting another key for the shared bathroom. I think I just in my mind assumed that anybody who could get into the building could use the bathroom, which would then just be locked if you were in it, if that makes sense. I'm not mm. sure. I've never lived in an apartment building, amazingly, so I, yeah, this is... Yeah, so I know nowadays, I mean... Well, no, the tenants have a key for the entrance and then a key for the apartment. But back then, that was not the case, usually. During the day, the doors of the building would be unlocked. You know, usually they were only locked at sunset by the caretaker. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to get into the building after dark, you would have to ring. So you definitely wanted your toilets locked. Sure, that makes sense. And who was responsible for cleaning the bathrooms? Was it just whoever was most bothered by a messy bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> no, usually I think how it worked uh, or how I know that these kind of things work is that the tenants that would use the bathroom would take turns, weekly turns to clean the bathroom or daily turns, I don't know. Sure. Uh, which meant basically back then the women of the family cleaning the bathroom. Of course, I was bathroom, just going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So Lucy asked for the key because she had to use the bathroom and her mother handed her the key and told her not to take too long uh, and to come back immediately. And when I read that, at first I was like, oh, that's odd. Why would she tell her daughter to come back immediately? And I think why I found it odd is because, I mean, you know it, we all read these kind of horrible stories all the time for doing this yeah. podcast, and your mind immediately goes to the most sinister place, you know? So I, I thought, have women or girls been assaulted or harassed while using the toilet? I mean, it's possible sure. in general, but... I haven't read anything about these kind of things in that case. And I don't think that was the reason. I'm pretty sure that Lucy's mother would have escorted the little girl to the bathroom if that would have been the case. I don't mm -hmm. think you sent... If you know there's somebody harassing little girls, you don't send her off to the bathroom by herself, right? No, and she was eight, right? So she wasn't... She was a little girl for sure, but she yeah. wasn't like five. I think it was more... First of all, don't occupy the toilet for longer than needed, you know? Mm. Don't go mm -hmm. off playing and wandering around the neighborhood. 
Right. And I also read that Lucy, she always had a ball with her to play and she would often forget the time while playing and her mother had an appointment around 3pm so that's why she didn't want Lucy to, you know, just wander off. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. I was more worried initially about the being quick part. I was like, don't give the kid a shy bladder, <laughs> like immediately. But no, it all this all makes sense. Yeah. So Lucy took the key, left the apartment, climbed the few steps up to the hallway toilet that was located on the next half level. Do you have half levels? Do you know what I'm talking about? That sounds like a like a landing of the stairs or like... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, I assume landing would be... It's not a floor seven and a half kind of situation. Right. <laughs> so Lucy went to the bathroom. Or at least that's what we think she did because we don't really know what happened. Because the minutes passed. Uh, it was 1.10, 1.15, 1.25. Lucy didn't return. In the meantime, Lucy's 15-year-old brother, Bruno, returned home from work for his lunch. And then around 1.30, Lucy's mother and Bruno decide to look for the girl. And they go upstairs to the toilet and it's locked and nobody's in there. So then they check the inner courtyard to see if Lucy's there playing. And they see a bunch of children who are dancing to the music of a hurdy-gurdy, but Lucy's not among them. Okay, two important questions. Was there yeah. a hurdy-gurdy man? And was he <laughs> singing songs of love? I'm not actually sure if anyone will know what I'm even talking about. Donovan's song that I'm going to have to add to the Fresh Hell mixtape that we have on Spotify. But... um. Yeah, I need more information on the hurdy-gurdy, please. That was very typical for many European cities at the time, especially Berlin. Hurdy-gurdy men, they would yeah. walk around the neighborhood, they would walk into the inner courtyards of buildings, and they would start playing. And, you know, nobody had a radio yet, although they were already invented. And this was, sure. you know, a welcome break from the chores of the women and children, and the hurdy-gurdy men would earn a couple of coins and then move on to the next house. Awesome. Yeah, I just, I only know about it really from the Donovan song. I'm not sure I've ever encountered one or know very much about the people who played them. So thank you. It's interesting to me. They start to ask the neighbors, of course, if anyone had seen Lucy and I read that they got very contradicting answers, whatever that means. I don't have any details. I assume it was just like, no, I haven't seen her. Yes, I saw her. No, wait, it was yesterday or these kind mm -hmm. of things. But we do know that nobody didn't know anything about Lucy's whereabouts. And so in the evening, Friedrich, who had then returned from work, decided to head down to the police station and report Lucy missing. The police started to investigate, you know, interviewing neighbors and friends. And what they heard several times was that someone had seen a man with a limp, aged between 30 and 40, with a straw hat, walking off in the direction of Humboldt Hain. So that's north of the Ackermannstrasse, where the... Berlin family lived, and that this man was holding the hand of a little girl whose description did match with Lucy, and he was leading her away from her home. Mm, mm -mm. No, don't like that. It's mm -mm. it's bad enough to have a missing child, and you hope that maybe someone has seen her, because, right, you're hoping that she's, oh, I saw her with, um, you yeah, know, yeah, this, yeah. these other family's kid. Like, she's probably yeah. there. That's what you're hoping happened, right? So it's bad enough to have a missing child, but then to have reports that people saw her with a strange man is... Yeah. Yeah. Mm -mm. I mean, it's why we're here, right? But... Mm. Yeah. I just... You just feel for the family. You can just imagine. I, I mean, don't know. Can, yeah. Yeah. You don't want to hear that. Mm-mm. Through Berlin runs a river, the Spree River. I think through most cities run There's rivers, a river. right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Especially old ones, because you needed it for the shipping, right? So Exactly. Yeah. In total, the Spree has a length of 400 kilometers, so that's 249 miles. And 48 of these kilometers, or 30 miles, run through Berlin. Uh, you can take a boat trip on the Spree. I did that when I was in Berlin, and it's lovely. Highly recommended. I think that's the thing you and I share. We love ships and boats. Like, whenever I go to a city with a river, which is basically almost every European city, as I said, I try to do a boat trip. I would have loved, 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 loved to take a cruise on the Mississippi. But uh, it was so expensive at the time, too. I, I couldn't justify it. Maybe one day, when we do yeah. our big US tour. Oh, they're so expensive. They're yeah. really, really expensive. So the River Spree runs through Berlin. I have another fun f- That is really a fun fact. I didn't know that until I researched this case. There are 920 bridges in Berlin. They are oh. Admittedly, not all across the Spree, because there are many channels and small side arms. But yeah, Berlin has more than double the amount of bridges than Venice, because Venice only has 400 bridges. Oh, that is interesting. And I think I'm doing this anything, you know, (laughs) where you come up with all the different side notes just because you want to avoid the horrible thing that we follow. That is something I do, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Bury the lead. (laughs) Because... uh, What I'm going to tell you now is truly horrible. Okay. In the morning of 11th of June 1904, so that's not quite two days after Lucy had disappeared from her home, two fishermen are sitting in their boat. Or, because I read two versions of this, on the river embankment. They were near Marshallbrücke, so that's in Berlin Mitte. The bridge is roughly three kilometers or 1.8 miles southwest of the Ackermannstraße. Just in case you want a bit of orientation. And that's where the family were living? So it's only a couple miles from their house? Okay. Yeah. So the two fishermen are sitting there, in their boat or on the embankment, and they're trying to catch some fish for the day. In water that was probably heavily polluted by all the factories and shipping industry. Yeah. And they are probably having a chat when they see a strange thing floating by. And it appeared to be a bundle, you know, something wrapped in bloody packing paper and i don't mean bloody as in british cursing but yeah the, no pe- the packing paper was bloody it's like the grace asquith case with the legs and yes the, yes the water. i was so thinking about that exactly. yeah they did what would forever make them part of the story and they pulled the bundle out of the water and then they realized what it was it was the torso of a little girl the body still had some clothing on One of them then probably hurries to the closest police station and the police come and they also get a doctor to examine the torso right there on the embankment. And the doctor concludes that the torso belongs to a girl around the age of eight and that she had been raped. And because of the pieces of clothing that were found with the torso and I think because there was a newly introduced registration system in place, it took the police only one hour to learn that the torso belonged to the eight-year-old Lucy Berlin who had been missing for two days. (sighs) this next part of info so they want to be sure that this is really Lucy's torso and so they call for Friedrich so that he can identify the torso and he looks at it and he confirms that this is his daughter Lucy because he recognizes a little scar on her chest oh wow there's can you imagine that I don't know why they keep This is something, again, that just keeps popping up over and over again in Mm. our stories, where was there no one else who would have... uh, There's just no words. It's... 
But really, was, was, I mean, maybe there was no one else who could. How, who would know about a scar on her torso, though? I except know. Except for the family, right? Or the doctor. And at, back then, they probably didn't have family yeah. pediatricians no. the way we do. And of course, of course, you know, it's easy to say, I suppose, like, oh my, how could they make her parents do that? But also, if that were my child and they said, we've pulled yeah, your daughter's you body, know. I'd, I'd, yeah. Yeah, I'd insist you on... You want to be sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. you would. It's just... Oh, my heart is just broken for that poor family. Two days later, on 13th of June, the head and arms are found. And another four days later, so on 17th of June, the legs were found. So each leg in a separate location. Oh. And so they did find all of her body parts eventually in the in the river? They found all the body parts in the river? Yeah, either in the river or on the embankment. So yeah. the perpetrator had disposed of the little girl by throwing her dismembered body into the river spree. All parts were brought in and they were thoroughly examined by the coroner, a man named Dr. Fritz Strassmann. He was an excellent coroner. He was the founder of the Berliner Society of Forensic Medicine and the author of two books on forensic medicine. And he concluded that Lucy had been murdered approximately one hour after her last meal. Oh, wow. Okay. So that would have been, was that the lunch on the 9th of June? It was because of the contents in her stomach, right? So showing the cucumbers and potato salad. Okay. Yeah. So if she died one hour after her last meal, that means she was murdered pretty soon after she had asked her mother for the bathroom key. As I stated before, the girl had been raped before her death and then died from asphyxiation. The concluded through strangulation but it was actually later determined that she actually either died from blood loss which i hope not oh wow yeah or from asphyxiation but not by strangulation but more probably from having something like a pillow pressed onto her face or from holding uh holding her nose and mouth shut i think it's pretty easy to do that to a little girl right yeah or even a even a gag and a you know what i mean it wouldn't be that Yeah. yeah oh that's awful Her heart and lungs showed the typical signs of asphyxiation. Her neck showed no sign of strangulation, though. Okay, yeah. She then was dismembered, but the coroner described the cuts as incompetent, done by what he called, quote, clumsy hands, end quote. Okay. Immediately after the torso was found, the police had started another round of interviewing the neighbors, and they pretty soon came to the door of a sex worker named Johanna Liebetrud, who was living next to the Berlin family, so really right next door, sharing a wall next mm-hmm. door. She had been released from prison on 11th of June, where she had to spend three days for slander. Okay. This woman had a man living with her most of the time. His name was Theodor Berger. And he was 35 years old. And when the police came knocking on Liebertrud's door, Theodor Berger was there as well. And he introduced himself as a scrap dealer and that he was just an acquaintance of Johanna Liebertrud. But I'm gonna talk more about this in a second. So the police asked them if they had seen anything on that day that Lucy had disappeared. And Theodor and Johanna said they barely know Lucy, but that she liked to hang out at the apartment of a woman named Mrs. Seiler. She was another sex worker who lived there with her boyfriend slash pimp, a man named Otto Lenz. And they tell the police that they should definitely look at this guy. Awesome. Police finally has a suspect. I mean, finally. (laughs) It's actually 13th of June when they arrest Otto Lenz, so that's only four days after the murder, which I find uh, remarkable. It really is. 1904, right? Yeah, no, all of the work done on this case is impressive, from the forensics to the police work. Seems thorough. 
So Otto Lenz is arrested, but he has an alibi, and it's it's a real alibi. He had been with an insurance agent that day. Uh, there was just no way that he could have been around at the time of Lucy's murder. So the police, they take another look at Theodor Berger. I can imagine that Otto Lenz might have pointed them in that direction after being accused by Johanna Liebetrud and Theodor Berger. And the investigators find that, yes, Theodor Berger is a scrap dealer, but not really. So that's only a cover-up, because in reality, Theodor Berger and Johanna Liebetrud are a couple. They have been for 18 years, and he is her pimp as well. Okay. Just like, yeah. So they have been lying about that, which, I mean, that alone doesn't make them suspicious. I think it was just outlawed once again. Sex work was just outlawed once again in Germany in 1901. So, of course, you would hide that information from the police, right? Yeah, definitely. But... I guess he appeared suspicious. He had quite a long police record already for things like damage to property, mischief, violation of public morals, battery, <laughs> procuration, theft, slander, burglary, resisting arrest, and so on. Okay. Also, at age 18, he was charged for a sex crime. I don't know any details. I have no idea if it was harassment or rape or uh, something along those lines. Okay. Either way, it's not good. It's no. not good. No. Apparently, he was a member of a gang of adolescents who kind of terrorized women and children of the area, you know, often harassing them sexually. I kind of, I don't know, I think of Clockwork Orange all of a sudden. No? I was just going to say, it's very Clockwork Orange. Yeah, no, I, charming. It's just, ugh. Yeah. And then he also had started his relationship with Johanna Liebetrud when she was only 14 years old, and Johanna's father had gone and confronted him. Oh. I don't know. It's, he was, I mean... I'm looking at the age, and yeah, 14 is a child, but in 1904, yeah. and Theodor Berger was 18, so... It's, yeah, yeah I it's... Think, yeah, it's, it, it, you know, for us today. Mm. Yeah. But I think it was more because Johanna's father knew that he was a do-no-good, I guess. Right, yeah. I just feel, I feel badly for her dad, because... Yeah. And for her, because even though it was a different time, 14 is... It's too you're young. You're too yeah, young. It has, has a grooming kind yeah, of... Yeah, it's a very much so. Yeah, yeah. I also want to mention that he owned a dog, a beautiful black poodle, and this man very clearly did not deserve a dog. Mm-mm. No. 13th of June, so the same day Lucy's head and arms had been found, Theodor Berger and Johanna Liebetrud were arrested as suspects. Okay, but sorry, wasn't Johanna in jail at the time of the murder? So she wouldn't have been part of it, would she? Yeah, that's correct. She definitely could not have been involved in the murder of the girl. But I guess the police needed to find out if she had known afterwards, if she did help him, you know, cover up the crime. Okay, so they're trying to see if she's an accessory after the fact or yeah. that sort of thing. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So the couple is interrogated separately, of course, and Theodor Berger keeps repeating the same statement. He has not seen Lucy that day, he had spent most of the day alone in Johanna's apartment, and he has nothing to do with the crime. Johanna Liebetrud, on the other hand, states that she had been to jail that day, but when she returned on 11th of June, she realized that a travel-sized wicker basket was missing. Uh, I will post a photo of the style of basket I suppose this was from the description, mm -hmm. but you can imagine it like a little trunk, but not made from wood or leather, but from wicker. Oh yeah, I have lots of wicker. <laughs> so according to the description, it was made from white wicker. Uh, 60 centimeters long and 50 centimeters in height, so that's 23 inches in length and 20 in height. 
and with a handle to carry it. And when the police asked Theodor Berger about the basket, he stated that he had brought home a woman while his girlfriend was in jail and that he gave her the wicker basket in exchange for sex. Ugh. Of course, he couldn't give any further details. Uh, he had no idea how that woman looked. Uh, he didn't know her name because he was too drunk to remember any of it. That's what he uh -huh. said. Yeah. I mean, if this does not only sound complete assholey, but also super suspicious, you're not mistaken. Yeah, that's good, because that's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, uh, <laughs> and people believed this? Okay. Yeah. Must have been a nice wicker basket. I do love, I'm, I am a fan of wicker. It's hard to dust. Yeah, that's why I don't like it. Yeah, yeah. So the police made a public statement informing the citizens of Berlin that they are looking for this white wicker basket. And, you know, they were waiting for anyone to come forward with the basket. But, uh, of course, in the meantime, they search Johanna Liebetrud's apartment. They search for any signs of blood, you know, on knives, walls, floors, down the drain. They don't find anything. Just on some of Berger's clothes, they found some traces of blood, but it had been cleaned so thoroughly that no further information could be won. How did they test for blood in 1904? I read that luminol was used to detect traces of blood since the late 1920s, early 1930s, if I'm not mistaken. But I guess in 1904, they would have used the Kastelmeier test that mm -hmm. had been established in 1903, right? Yeah. And it, would you like to read the explanation from Wikipedia I sent over? I can absolutely do that. It's got some really fun words in it, especially if you're not yeah. a native English speaker. <laughs> so, quote, The Castle-Meyer test is a presumptive blood test first described in 1903, in which the chemical indicator phenothaline is used to detect the possible presence of hemoglobin. It relies on the peroxidase-like activity of hemoglobin in blood to catalyze the oxidation of phenothaline, which is visible as a bright pink color. The Castle-Meyer test is a form of catalytic blood test, one of the two main classes of forensic tests commonly employed by by crime labs in the chemical identification of blood. So that's the one that just tells you whether or not something is blood. I don't know. I don't think the test is very reliable in cases where the blood has been completely cleaned up. It's not mm -hmm. like luminol, you know, that <laughs> lights up a fucking place even after a couple of years. Like I love it so much when we watch, like, because we all watch them, right? The crime shows. And they're like, and nobody ever saw her again. And then it's like, finally, they bring in the luminol and the whole house lit up like a Christmas tree. It's fascinating. It's amazing. It's, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. It's so interesting to me. And I think it, it can detect it. It lights up blood that is like four years old. I think four or yeah. five years. Is <sighs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting. But I think with the phenothaline test, it's not like you were saying, it's not like luminol and it's not species specific. And I think that false positives were possible. So I think yeah. phenothaline is like that thing where they rub the cute, the swab on something. And if it turns mm -hmm. pink, there's blood, but you don't know whose blood or if it's even human yeah. blood. It's just a good start. It shows you that there's yeah. actually blood somewhere. So yeah, early, early forensics. Yeah. But still, I mean, it's interesting. They yeah, absolutely. Lot. Yeah. On 26th of June, a fisherman contacted the police and he stated that on 11th of June, he had found a white wicker basket floating in the Spree, close by the Kronprinzenbrücke. This bridge links Berlin Mitte with the Tiergarten district. So he had seen this wicker basket floating in the Spree and decided that's a nice basket. He could surely need such a nice basket. And he pulled it out of the water and took it home. 
And of course, the police ask, okay, why, why did it take you so long to come forward with that? And I mean, we've been looking for this white wicker basket for one and a half weeks already. And he says that, well, he rarely read the newspaper, which I find very smart. I yeah. rarely read the newspapers nowadays myself. <laughs> and that he just now heard about the murder of the little girl and he immediately came to the police. So the basket was brought in and they found some wool fiber and traces of blood inside the basket. The wool fibers matched Lucy's underskirt. And the traces of blood? In 1901, the German bacteriologist Paul Uhlenhut came up with a method to distinguish traces of animal blood from traces of human blood. And it's the so-called Uhlenhut test. I sucked at chemistry and biology, and that's why, Annie, would you read the <laughs> quote from AmericanForensics.org? I yes. think that will explain to you the science behind the okay. human hood test. All right, here we go. Quote, The antigens in a human being's blood are called protein markers. These are found on the surface of red blood cells. Antibodies then attach to the antigens. Since an antibody is a protein used to help fight foreign substances, bacteria, and viruses, it stands to reason that the antigens are crucial to our existence. They are effective by clumping to a foreign antigen that may have entered our bloodstream by way of a foreign antibody. If a forensic scientist is attempting to detect a foreign blood type or even species type, they will inject a specific protein into the blood expecting it to clump. This also occurs when the blood type of one individual is introduced to the blood type of another. The Uhlenhut test was the first test developed to help forensic scientists detect the existence of a foreign blood substance. It was instrumental in helping to show where a foreign antigen was present. This has helped forensic investigators to find and convict many suspects of crimes over the last century. Because the antibody is specific to the antigen, it will only implicate where applicable, narrowing down the list of usual suspects. End quote. Thank you. Yeah. The Lucy Berlin case was the first time that the Uhlenhut test was successfully used in a murder case investigation. Oh, excellent. I love this kind of... No, me too. We have this, this was the first case who did this, and, you know, I think it's... Yeah. Wow. So, with what they knew about Theodor Berger, you know, his rap sheet... Yep. How the wool fibers and the fact that the blood inside the basket was in fact human blood and not just, you know, from carrying home some schnitzel. The investigators were pretty satisfied. They thought there was enough circumstantial evidence to press charges. And I think they're correct. I agree. On 31st of July 1904, Lucy Berlin was laid to rest at the St. Elizabeth Cemetery in Berlin and more than 1,000 people attended the funeral. On 12th of December 1904, the murder trial started and it lasted 10 days. And in those 10 days, over 100 witnesses appeared on the stand. For example, Lucy's older brother, the 20-year-old Carl Berlin. He stated that, yeah, Lucy sometimes visited the apartment of Mrs. Seiler and she knew Otto Lenz and referred to him as Mr. Lenz. But she also often visited the apartment of Johanna Liebetrud and she referred to Theodor Berger as Uncle. So it's not, they stated that they didn't know her very well, you remember? I do, yeah. She liked to dance to the music Theodor Berger used to make with his hurdy-gurdy. Everybody owns a hurdy-gurdy. Everybody in has. I think now they're really hard to get. I think they're very <laughs> yeah, valuable they and hard to find. Yeah, this is just heartbreaking, isn't it? It's, it's, there were more witnesses. For example, one witness who said that one of those mornings she saw a man who did look very similar to Theodor Berger and who had a dog who could have possibly been a black poodle. Uh, she saw that man near the spree and the man was carrying a package wrapped in packing paper and it seems he did throw the package in the river. 
But Theodor Berger still swore that he was innocent. And the defense had hired experts who tried to prove that the wool fibers were not identical to Lucy's clothing, that the Uhlenhut test did not prove without a doubt that it was in fact human blood in the basket. Uh, and speaking of the basket, wasn't this basket very common? There exist thousands of the exact same basket, the same mm. make. But Johanna Liebetrud identified the white basket as her missing basket. And didn't the fact that there were no traces of blood found in Johanna Liebetrud's apartment prove that the murder could not have taken place there? And I guess, I don't know, I th of course it's debatable if Theodor Berger was in fact the murder of Lucy Berlin. But in my opinion, there was a lot of evidence, even though some of it was just circumstantial. It's like a puzzle where all the pieces just fall into place and form a pretty clear picture of what must have happened, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but when you take all of it together, it's pretty damning. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the judge thought the same. But please... Now, uh, if you're standing, sit down, maybe uh, hold on to the <laughs> edge of your seat, because you might, you're going to be, you're going to be mad when you hear what I'm going to tell you about the verdict uh, for the rape, murder, and dismemberment of the eight-year-old Lucy Berlin. Theodor Berger was sentenced to 15 years in prison. 15 years. Plus, I think, six months for procuration, which, I mean, 15 wow. years. Wow. That's, yeah. What's that's that? You know, I wish I could say I'm shocked by that, but I'm not. I'm sad and angry, but not shocked. Do you think that if uh, this crime had been committed against, like, the 20-year-old son of a wealthy family, it would be the same sentence? I think, yeah. And I think, I mean, look at what kind of... The investigation, It she was a working class girl. Yeah. yeah. The police, yeah, that's still true. The police tried everything. Like, they did so much. And they really solved the case really quickly. So yeah. I think it was a, so, such a high-profile case. I don't know. I would have to check into years. what was the usual sentencing for a murder back in those days in Germany. Yeah. Because you remember the, the verdicts here in Austria were like... Yeah. You're gonna get 30 years and every year on the anniversary you're gonna sit in the dark and think about what you have done and you're gonna, you know, this... Yeah, yeah I approve of that, to be honest. I think yeah. that's fair. Yeah. Like, I'm not into... I don't think that's cruel and unusual punishment. I think it's fair for once a year to sit in the yeah. dark and think about what you did. Like, I don't... I don't have... But 15 years for raping, murdering, and dismembering a child? Mm. And mm. then you're just back out to do it to another child? Because you can't, like... You can't imagine that it was a one and done situation, right? Like somebody who was that no did that level, right? Then and it's not had... the first time he assaulted women right. or children. Even I don't know exactly the details, but he he had that in his police report mm. from when he was eighteen. So mm -hmm. look, I don't know if Theodor Berger got out of prison after fifteen years or if he possibly died in prison. I mean, it's possible. I couldn't find any information on that, but. One thing I'm sure about is, back in those days especially, he didn't have a great time with his fellow inmates, I think. This was a high-profile case, so they definitely knew who he was. Good. And yeah, there was always a certain level of, could it have been somebody else? I personally, and that's just my opinion, I do think that he did it. In yeah. my head, it might have happened like this. So Lucy goes to the bathroom. Theodore, who is alone at home, sees his chance and invites her in. You know, maybe... So she could play with the dog. He then rapes her, murders her, dismembers her, and then uses the wicker basket to transport her body parts, throwing them in the river at different locations. 
Yeah, I agree. That sounds exactly like what I would imagine happened. And it's just so sad. It it just feels like you would imagine some kind of safety inside your own apartment yeah. building among yeah. your neighbors, right? I mean, your eight-year-old child says, I'm just going to walk up a couple of stairs to go to the toilet. Yeah. And you never see her alive again? Yeah, I don't know how anybody ever recovers from that sort of thing. I also don't know, just to lighten it up a little bit at the end, I also don't know who takes things out of rivers. Would you ever see anything floating by in a river and think, I'll get that for myself? Do you know what I mean? I It would have to, well, if it's a dog... Oh, I'm well, yeah. It. No, I mean, obviously. <laughs> no, but, I just mean like, but you if know, it's, if it's if it's a piece of wood and on it is the most beautiful tiara you've ever seen. I mean, okay, then maybe yes. But what if it's just like a, because all of these things are like parcels, wrapped up parcels. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Or, and I, I'm going to admit it, like, I feel like I've seen things like that, where if I put a little effort into it, I could get it onto shore and yeah. open it up and see what's inside. But I don't want to i don't want to know yeah yeah but i also i think if people do that and pull things out of rivers i think that's great because we don't want that kind of things going into the ocean not only I, body parts but yeah the, oh i agree you know, completely yeah and it also holding there will end up in the ocean so. yeah that's your that's a very good point although i doubt that the fishermen did pull out the wicker basket because of that no it's just it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's just a different... I mean, I've taken things off the curb. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I've never, you know, went curb shopping for for furniture. It's just pulling things out of a river seems like next level to me. It's too much effort. It's a lot of effort for probably something you don't want to see. Yeah. I don't know. It's such a sad case. It's such a sad case. I can't get over that sentence is... When I read that, I was like... Yeah. I mean, you know, our sentencing here is like, if you get life in prison, it's usually like 20, 25 years. But this guy, at that time, he should have never, you know. No. People were asking for a death sentence, and it was available at the time, as far as I read. So oh, I don't know what happened there. That does make you wonder how he got off with just, yeah. I think because it was circumstantial, maybe, because they maybe. were not, they couldn't. 100%. 100% proof that yeah. it was him, yeah. That was really interesting and very sad. Thank you. Do you have something good? You I do. do right? I do. My something good this week is actually my just talking about her earlier and how people describe her as pretty. And I was just thinking about all of my nieces and nephews and how I've sort of made a tried to. I'm sure that I fail all the time, but I always try to make a conscious effort to compliment them on things that don't have anything to do with their looks because I think that's one of the things we don't like, right? When we read about how pretty a victim was, it always makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Like, but I was able to see my niece and nephew in Atlanta, and my niece, who's just turned 10, was amazing with Opus. She walked all around Atlanta with him, with his, because he's in service dog training. So he was an absolutely perfect boy. And I'll have to share a picture. I've got a picture of the back of her walking him around because we uh, took her to the toy store for helping her us with Opus. And she picked out a sword, like a plastic sword. And I've just got a picture of her walking around with <laughs> this great Dane, this little 10-year-old girl. She's got her sword tucked down the back of her shirt. And uh, and our nephew, who's just turned 14, who is just so 
kind and generous and loving and thoughtful. And these are the things I'm proud of them for. You know, your looks don't have anything to do really with who you are. You're just, that's just lottery, genetic lottery, right? And the other something good that I can't believe is my my nephew Ben in the UK has just finished school. And I don't know if I mentioned he also passed his driving test this year. So yeah, they're all growing up too quickly, too quickly. I guess my something good is the nieces and nephews. Yeah. My something good is that you're back from Florida because I missed you and it felt so strange to me. Like we're communicating every day. I know. And it's like, I mean, we still were like we good still morning were t- and yeah, yeah, texting. But it was not still, as much as usual. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's I very you. strange. I'm glad you're back. I missed you too. It's This <laughs> is very healthy for me because I'm such a self-isolator. So it forces me <laughs> to talk to you. Which is great. It's it, it sounds like a bad thing. I'm saying like, oh, I'm forced to talk to you, but it's actually it's it's one of those weird things where I know that people who have like issues with anxiety or depression and people who are specifically dealing like I'm really in it right now for myself, which is tricky. But it's one of those silly things where I self isolate so much, and then every time I talk to you, it's like, why do I? do that like just call somebody but then my yeah. brain is like no you're gonna bother them you know what i mean it's uh brains are the worst bother me no i know all my friends feel that way and i feel that way about them it's just that's how exactly it's anxiety yeah. brain but i missed yeah. you so yeah it's nice nice to be back and i keep trying to figure out paul and i were looking last night and it's like can we start to plan a trip maybe can we yes i do think it. we can. can yes you can I think we can. So, yeah, it's exciting. Possibilities on the horizon. Yay. So, um, I'm sick of my own voice right now. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to give over to you now. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. So let's see if I can remember how this goes. Okay. So before we go, we would like to thank you for leaving the very, very kind reviews that you leave. We can't tell you how much we appreciate them. They really make our day. Also, shout out to the people who fucking hate me, but constantly update their reviews about how much they hate me, because those <laughs> clicks still help us sell ads. That's some determination <laughs> right there. Like, I don't know what I like. It's impressive. There's a lot of other free entertainment out there, so if you don't like us, you can choose something else. <laughs> It's okay. And what else? There are, of course, people who do love us, and we love them, and you will find them in our Facebook page and other places as well. They're not just on Facebook, but uh, it's such a nice community of people. Just search for Fresh Hell Murder, and you will find our Facebook group. If you would like some more information on how to become a Patreon patron or where to buy merch or if you want the P.O. box for sending things to us. Any of that information you will find it on our webpage, which is freshhellpodcast.com. And is there anything else that I need to... Please tell your pets with a tie. Yeah. Hug them, cuddle them, treat them kindly. Also, treat your fellow human beings kindly. Give them What do we say lately? Give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Please. Just initially. You don't have to constantly give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, if somebody's an asshole more than once, I'm fine. Fuck them. And if you are going through hell... Keep going. Tschüss. Bye. Bye.